Hello team and welcome back to the Simply Fit Podcast. Today I bring you some incredible news. I have been working on a secret project for the past three or four months now and I now can tell you that the brand new follow along workout channel is live and here. On this YouTube channel, you're gonna find workouts for fat loss, muscle building, improving your cardio health, flexibility, everything is gonna be on there. You're gonna find body weight workouts, dumbbell workouts, kettlebell and resistance bands workouts, all that you can follow along with. And the best part is that it's completely free. They're also around 10 to 20 minutes long, meaning if you're short of time, you can quickly complete an effective workout or you can combine like two or three of them together and complete like a full 45 to 60 minute workout. New workouts will go live on the channel every Tuesday and Thursday and they're gonna be accompanied by an amazing backdrop, which I'm sure you're all gonna enjoy. So if you wanna find the channel, just search Elliot Hassoon into YouTube and you'll find it very easily. And please subscribe. It makes me very, very happy and it helps the channel grow. And feel free to tell your friends, your family, your pets, whoever you want to share this with and let's work out together. Hello team and welcome to episode 271 of the Simply Fit podcast. In today's episode, I have the pleasure of speaking with Michelle Hone. Michelle is the founder and head nutritionist at the Fit Clinic and the host of the Female Focus podcast. Michelle has a passionate and deep interest in female health and specializes in hormonal health, fertility, pregnancy, and body composition. Although today's episode is primarily female-focused, if you're a male listening today, you're guaranteed to take away plenty of value, as I know I certainly did. In this episode, you can expect to learn whether or not it's healthy or optimal for us to be fasting, Michelle's perspective on the oral contraceptive pill and whether it should be prescribed to manage PMS or PCOS, along with Michelle's incredibly insightful learnings and experience of having a miscarriage during her first pregnancy. So without further ado, Michelle Hone. Michelle Hone, welcome to the show. How are you today? I'm great. How are you? I am very, very well. Thank you for asking. It's so lovely to have you here. Thank you for being here first things first. And I want to dive straight into your story and give the listeners a little bit of background about who you are, what it is that you do. Could you give us a little bit of insight into what your day-to-day looks like and how you ended up doing what you do today? So yeah, my day-to-day is I am the founder of The Fit Clinic. So The Fit Clinic is a nutrition coaching company, which essentially specializes in female health. So anything from uh, body composition, performance, PCOS, hormonal issues like endometriosis, fertility is a big part that we specialize in. I suppose we'll maybe go into the backstory behind that shortly. Um, fertility, periods, PMS, all the things that go along with being a female, essentially, because we are quite complex. I think a big reason, I kind of to touch on that, like a big reason that I have become really interested and specialized in this area is no offense to you, Elliot, but men are just not that interesting when it comes to their physiology. So if you think about it from one month to the next, your physiology essentially stays the exact same. There's not many weights and hormonal fluctuations and mood and sex drive and energy and metabolism. Whereas us complex creatures are a little bit more interesting and there's lots of wavering, there's lots of fluctuation. So 
I think that's a huge part of it. Just I find it so interesting to work with females and work with the female physiology. My background is I started off doing a BSc in sports science and then I moved straight into doing a PhD in nutrition. And really like just to kind of keep it brief because I always tend to waffle on about this, but I, I suppose with a PhD, it's, it's it was a research-based PhD. So you get very much pigeonholed in one area. And I wanted to come out of my PhD feeling like I was really well-rounded. So I decided to set up this Instagram page called The Fit Clinic. I don't know where the name came from, but here we are. And the idea was to take research paper, which I suppose a lot of people can struggle to really take what is a take-home message from a research paper. I wanted to take those papers and essentially make them easy to understand on social media, like for different coaches and personal trainers and nutritionists. And that's essentially where it started. And people started contacting me, asking me to essentially design nutrition plans. And there was a little bit of resistance at the start because I think I just had a lot of self-limiting beliefs, to be honest. I was like, oh God, no. Like It was almost like an imposter syndrome type thing then yeah I remember just overnight I was like okay I'm just gonna do this I put together my consultation forms I put together a plan and here we are uh, seven years later so I have the most incredible team so there's a team of 12 of us and what's amazing is we all have our own area of expertise so we will have nutritionists who specialize in female health female hormones PCOS, endometriosis, PMS, fertility, and then we'll have other nutritionists who would specialize in digestive issues and people who have a really poor relationship with food. So yeah, we're a really well-rounded team, which is amazing. So, so lucky to have such a great team. Yeah, what a journey. And it sounds like a very, very comprehensive team and a lot of different specialists for a lot of different areas, which definitely helps. And I'm particularly interested about what led you in the direction of choosing nutrition to focus on in the early stages. Obviously, it's got more specialized as the years come on. But did you start with your own health and fitness journey when you were maybe a teenager or when did that all begin for you? Yeah, well, like I suppose my health and fitness journey probably started when I started sports science, which was when I was about 18 or 19. And just started working out in the gym and started to get interested in nutrition. But to be totally honest, I ended up like actually having like a full-blown eating disorder, which I feel like what's really interesting, I feel like a lot of health professionals are coming from that perspective, which is really interesting because it means that once we have recovered, we can really put ourselves in someone else's shoes and have a lot of empathy towards someone who does come to us with a poor relationship with food. So yeah, that's essentially where my journey started. And I think that's really where my interest in nutrition became because I actually became quite obsessive about it. Thankfully then for me, it was all to do with aesthetics. It was all to do with how I looked and how I felt. And then I suppose my recovery like was actually really straightforward. It wasn't to do with therapy or anything like that, which I know can be so effective for a lot of people. But for me, I actually started in a CrossFit gym when I was 22 and all of a sudden there was no mirrors there was no body composition it was all about okay like how much can you lift versus not even the person beside you but versus how much you could lift last week and all of a sudden my perspective and focus shifted on me going to the gym to be like oh I need to punish myself because I ate quote unquote crap over the weekend and it changed to be okay I need to eat these carbohydrates and I need to eat these foods in order for me to recover from that session so I can be stronger next week. And yeah, that's essentially how I suppose I suppose I got into health and fitness. And thankfully I've recovered. And as I said, thankfully I have so much empathy and a lot of kind of working tools that I can, I suppose, empower clients with when it comes to people who don't have the best relationship with food. 
Absolutely. And it's amazing that CrossFit had such a therapeutic impact on you as well. But I can see it and I've, I've heard of it quite a lot. Also powerlifting, I've found that helps with a lot of people who have had that bodybuilding focus for so long and all of a sudden that switch where I actually need to eat in order to lift this weight or recover from this session. It takes the emphasis off the physique massively and yeah, it just eases the load. And, and you'll probably know yourself going to the gym for purely aesthetic reasons. It's just so exhausting and boring, really. Like I dragged myself to the gym all those times like against my will whereas obviously there's sessions where I'm like not overly happy to go to these days but the focus is just completely shifted and it's just much more positive it's to do with not so much like now as getting strong like obviously that is a main goal but really for me as a now mother it's really just about giving myself a little bit of headspace and I really do it for my sanity to be honest absolutely No, I couldn't agree more. And I think there's only a certain amount of lifespan. I mean, there's different situations for every single person, but I think there is a certain amount of lifespan to how much you can train purely for aesthetic reasons. I know that I ran into that wall and I think that a lot of people are fighting that battle now. And I'm not surprised why a lot of people don't have the motivation to go to the gym when it's purely for those reasons, Uh, because it's also so temperamental as well. Like, you know, you might go to the gym super consistently, but your diet isn't in line with where it should be. And it's literally like you are go to the gym for zero purpose, right? Whereas if you add a performance element to it, irrespective of how your nutrition is, and obviously it's not giving people permission to slack on their nutrition, but at least it gives them more rationale to go to the gym instead of, yeah, purely focusing on what they look like in the mirror, right? Yeah, absolutely. And on the note of the complex creatures that females are, I want to dive into many, many different topics that will jump back and forth if I'm completely honest, but I want to get started by going through something that I hear a lot of, which is women and fasting. I think that fasting has gotten very, very popular in recent years. People are a little less vocal about it right now than they were maybe like two or three years ago, especially pre-pandemic. I think it was a, it was a big, big thing. And the similar principles were applied to, okay, well, a, a man will fast and he will be getting a great amount of benefits from doing it, not just from a time-saving or calorie perspective, but also from all these hormonal uh, standpoints that we're going to get advantages from. And then those same principles we apply to a female, but it almost sounds like they're very, very different responses that are going to happen based on the physiology of both the two. So can you go through why it might not be so beneficial to a female to fast and also the reasons why it could be for certain females? Yeah. So I'll kind of start with a quote by, I don't know if you follow Dr. Stacey Sims. She is a nutritionist. She has a PhD. She's amazing. Like I definitely recommend following her. She's a great book well and her quote is I always steal this from her but I always quote her (laughs) is women are not small men and basically what this means is we're not a shrunken down smaller version of the male physiology we're so much more complex than that and she actually has done a lot of reading herself around the research in fasting and what we find is that a lot of the research around fasting has been done in men and this is the case in a you'll know yourself with a lot of research in terms of health and fitness and nutrition like even during my own PhD I am a woman I was I was a researcher and I was also omitting females from my research because they are complex and there's so many variables when it comes to their menstrual cycle so unfortunately when it comes to fasting and a lot of the other research women are omitted so The issue is that we're taking the research that's been done in men when it comes to fasting, which has shown to have massive benefits, not just in terms of body composition, especially in terms of cognitive performance as well, and just kind of overall longevity and overall health. And there is huge amount of benefits, but we're taking this and just applying it to women when our physiology is very, very different to that. So 
it's just a case that we actually don't know from a research standpoint, we don't know the effects of fasting in women. I know anecdotally from working with clients that there are, and this is not to say that all women can't fast. What I mean is that it's a case that it's not a case that every woman can fast, if that makes sense. So basically like it really comes down to hormones. So when you are fasting, when you think about it, when you wake up in the morning and you don't eat breakfast, your cortisol is already at its highest first thing in the morning. It's what makes us, wakes us up in the morning. It's what makes us alert. So if you are skipping a meal on top of that, that's going to, again, release cortisol and adrenaline or stress hormones from our adrenal glands. So when it comes to our female hormones, our progesterone, our estrogen, and our ability to reproduce or our ability to create our menstrual cycle, our menstrual cycle is so, so sensitive to these changes or these increases in cortisol and adrenaline. So if we are continuously kind of in this, like, you know yourself, the kind of a sympathetic as opposed to a parasympathetic nervous system state. So we have our two nervous system state. We have our sympathetic, which is kind of our fight or flight response. And then we have our parasympathetic, which is kind of like our rest or digest. It's when we're chilled out, it's when we're doing meditation, it's when we're breathing. We're supposed to be in our parasympathetic state most of the time. The reason that we have our sympathetic nervous system is to prepare us to run from a predator, to prepare us to run from danger. But unfortunately, we are continuously, a lot of us are chronically stressed and we're continuously in this sympathetic nervous system, this fight or flight response state. And it's not just a case that I'm not just saying this is just for people who are stressed, but it's people who are just doing, doing, doing. Like I'm literally like putting my hand up here. I'm so guilty of this. But I think as well, like we won't go into it, but women are just expected to do so much. And I think we are not even that we're expected, but we place so much expectations on ourselves to do absolutely everything. You have to be, you have to be a mother, but you also have to run a business and you also have to, but, oh, you're running a business. Do you not like, do you not look after your child? And oh, you're looking after your child all the time. Do you not have aspirations to run a business? So it's so, so overwhelming. And we're continuously doing, 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 and we're constantly in this sympathetic nervous system state. So just to kind of backtrack a little bit, if we are adding fasting in on top of that, which we know puts us into this kind of fight or flight response what can happen is, as I said, our female hormones are so, so sensitive to changes in, um, or especially to being chronically in this kind of high cortisol state. And what can happen is it just interacts with our hormones. It The big thing is that it actually interacts with our hormone progesterone. So progesterone is a hormone that we create and that we synthesize after we ovulate. So our menstrual cycle is split up into two different phases, our follicular phase, which is before ovulation and our luteal phase, which is after ovulation. And in our luteal phase after ovulation, that's when our progesterone is at its highest. And progesterone is a really, really great hormone. It's amazing. We love progesterone. It's our zen hormone. It has anti-anxiety effects. It makes us chilled out. It also makes us a little bit more introverted. So women will notice when they get into more in tune with their cycle that they feel more introverted. They just they don't want to socialize as much like kind of in their luteal phase after ovulation, especially coming up to, towards their period. So it's an anti-anxiety kind of introverted chill out hormone. But the interesting thing is that cortisol and progesterone actually compete for each other. So if we're continuously pushing out low level cortisol all of the time, it takes from our progesterone. So all of a sudden, when we don't make enough progesterone, that's when we start to really, really suffer from PMS. So this is a huge thing. So any clients who come to me who have really bad PMS, the first thing I'm going to look at is their stress. And it's the last thing that people want to look at because they're like, what supplement do I need to take? What nutrition plan do I need to follow? I'm like, you need to just calm down. You need to stop doing everything. 
And this is essentially what fasting feeds into. If fasting is going to produce cortisol, it's therefore going to kind of rob us of progesterone. Therefore, we're going to get like bad PMS or sore boobs or cramps or migraines. We're feeling really, really low, really emotional, crying for four or five days before our periods. And like, what's really interesting is you'll notice that if a woman kind of gets more in tune with her cycle and starts to track, like I noticed last month, for like to be totally honest, last month, I was just dead. I was so lethargic. I was so emotional. I felt like my life was falling apart. But if I looked back on the month that I'd had, I'd had such a stressful month. I was skipping meals, not intentionally, just wasn't making time to eat. I was overdoing it in the gym and just trying to do so, so much wasn't on top of my sleep. So my point is, when you start to get more in tune and understand how these changes in cortisol and things that we do impact our hormones, you start to realize, okay, I feel like this because I wasn't looking after myself this month. Now I need to just cop on (laughs) and stop skipping breakfast and stop skipping meals and grabbing something here and there. Like focus on my supplements, focus on my sleep and maybe pair it back a little bit with training and maybe pair it back a little bit with fasting. So that's really long-winded way of answering your question around fasting and females. And again, like just to kind of say, as you alluded to earlier on, it's not a case that like nobody can fast. If you're a woman, you can't fast, but it's a case of looking at all of your stressors. So if you're waking up first thing in the morning, you're having coffee. So caffeine again is a stimulant. It's going to release cortisol and adrenaline. If you're going to the gym fasted, you're doing a session like, yes, a training session is going to clear your head, but at the same time, when you know yourself from your work, when you apply progressive overload to a training program, it's a stress. You're trying to stress your body out in order for it to adapt and get stronger and get faster and grow, but essentially it is a stress. So if you're waking up first thing in the morning, cortisol is high, you're drinking your coffee, that's your stimulant, you're fasting, and then you're going to the gym. And then at the end of the month, you've really bad PMS. That's the reason. Like you're just doing too much. So it's a case of looking at everything. So maybe you can fast if your nutrition is on point for the rest of the day. Maybe you're not consuming much caffeine and you're on top of your sleep. Your training like is sufficient, but it's not too much. And obviously you don't have any psychological stressors. Then, okay, maybe you can fast. But there's no hard and fast rules. I find when it comes to females, there's some women that can completely get away with fasting and have perfect periods and go on to have no fertility issues whatsoever. And then there's other women who, once we cut out out fasting, we realize how detrimental it had been to their health and things start to work more efficiently. I think the female that you described with minimal psychological stress and not so much going on and wasn't you know, going to the gym in the morning, wasn't suffering with low sleep, it's probably like 1% of women, right? So I think the, the hard and fast rule for, I think for most people would just be to reflect on whether it is advantageous or not. So I can imagine a lot of people will be starting to second guess whether that's the right choice for them now. And let's say there's a woman who says, actually, it helps me a lot with my calorie management. And ultimately, I'm going to continue with it. What tips would you give them? Obviously, you mentioned maybe scaling back a little bit on the training, reducing the caffeine they're having in the morning. Any other key tips for a woman who are going to choose to fast who maybe wouldn't be the best candidates for it? I would just say as well, making sure your nutrition is on point for the rest of the day, like making sure you're getting in your meals and your snacks, you're managing your blood sugars, you're eating sufficient protein so that especially if you're training, you can recover from those training sessions. Then as well, like one supplement that I find can really, really help is magnesium. So magnesium is essentially like, I call it like nature's tranquilizer. It chills us out, it makes us zen. So I find that can be really, really good, especially for anyone who's kind of little bit stressed a little bit anxious that's brilliant and definitely like on top of your sleep like if you're not getting 
eight hours sleep, you shouldn't be waking up and then not eating breakfast until like noon. I would definitely say that sleep in particular should definitely be considered. Mm. I've never considered it before, but would there be rationale potentially to fast on the days that you don't train? And if you're going to be training fasted, then, well, typically going to be training fast, maybe you opt to have a meal on those days and then just stick to fasting on the days that you rest. Yeah, that's actually yeah, a really, really good idea. Like, and you'll notice, or I will, like, I know I notice and definitely with clients is that if you wake up and you do have caffeine and you do fast and you do go to the gym and you come home and you don't have food straight away, I'm literally shaking. Like my body is like the dictionary definition of fight or flight. So it's just about realizing that, like, how can that be good for your body really when you think about it? So yeah, that is actually a good idea. Like fast on days where you don't exercise that. And like, I think it's important for women to know as well. Like there, there's a small amount of research to show that maybe fasting confers this benefit that isn't to do with calories when it comes to weight loss. But for the most part, the reason, you know yourself, the reason fasting works from a body composition perspective is you simply don't eat as many calories in a given day. So if we can try and like, if fasting isn't for you, there's still ways and means of, of managing your calorie intake without having fasting. Mm, one final question on fasting, just whilst we're here, it just came to my mind right now, is that would there be benefits to reversing the hours that you fast? So rather than waking up and fasting in the morning, would there be more benefits to maybe having an earlier dinner than fasting through the night? Yeah, that's actually a really, really good suggestion. I don't think we have the research. Well, we definitely don't have the female research on it. From a cortisol perspective, it definitely does make sense. So as I said, your cortisol is at its highest first thing in the morning. So if you have breakfast, if there's carbohydrates in this, like especially if it's a well-balanced meal, it brings us our cortisol, not even back to baseline, but it just kind of suppresses a little bit. So it's not completely ramped up like for the whole morning. So yeah, that's actually a good suggestion to have breakfast in the morning and maybe have like an early enough dinner and then finish it there and then go again the following day. Yeah, I think it might fall in line with less psychological stresses as well. I mean, don't get me wrong, the only time that most of us can think about our psychological stresses is that time at night, but maybe there's a little less on your agenda in the evening. I'm keeping my fingers crossed anyway. But coming into the nutrition side of things, you mentioned that was vital to stay on top of. And I feel that we are noticing, especially with females, if I'm completely honest, based on my client base, I will hear the occasional man tell me about, you know, the dairy intolerance, the gluten intolerance, etc. But it's almost like one in two females, if I'm completely honest. So why are they so prevalent at this moment? moment in time, especially with the females that I'm working with and the females I just experienced in day-to-day life. So I think a big thing, like I think it's massively overemphasized to be honest. So we kind of have this, especially like some nutritionists will just have this idea that no matter what a client comes to them with, whether it's PCOS or PMS or weight loss issues, they'll just like, oh, let's just cut out gluten and dairy, right? So when you cut out gluten and dairy, you know yourself if you've ever done this before. You can't deprocess food. There's no processed food that you can really eat that doesn't have some form of gluten or dairy in it. And all of a sudden, this is a whole category cut out. And therefore, what we end up doing is just essentially really improving our diet and improving our nutrient profile and eating more vegetables and eating more fruit and eating more proteins. And inevitably, we do feel better. So I always wonder is it really the gluten and dairy that's actually the culprit or is it the processed foods? And one thing I would say is like, I would never, like if a client came to us, I would never say, okay, you can't eat X foods, you can't eat processed foods. I think like we're very, very much about moderation. We're very much about incorporating a nutrition plan into someone's life as opposed to a nutrition plan taking control of someone's life. But I think the other thing when it comes to gluten and dairy is that I think we all have a tolerance level for it. I don't think that a lot of us are completely intolerant to dairy or gluten, but I think that 
we're eating a lot of it at frequent periods throughout the day. So I think that if we were just to actually, I find clients, if we just pair back and find, okay, what is your actual tolerance level for this? They actually feel so much better. And then the other thing that kind of, it's almost like confirmation bias in a way. What happens, like you'll know yourself again, if you've ever cut out dairy for say like six weeks, completely cold turkey and then you go and try to reintroduce it again you will be really sick and the reason for that is because we have our lactase enzyme which breaks down our milk sugar called lactose and our body's very smart if it realizes god she's not eating dairy why am i wasting energy making this random enzyme lactase she doesn't need it our body stops making that enzyme and therefore we we can actually make ourselves lactose intolerant we can make ourselves not, I suppose, stop making that that enzyme. So you will feel like a lot of people will cut it for six weeks and then go back, like have a cream cake when they're out at a party or whatever it is, or have some, have a milkshake and they will be so sick. But that's not saying that they're hundred percent natively or organically intolerant to dairy. It's just a case that they've actually made themselves dairy intolerant. We do have a couple of clients that like that don't eat dairy or they don't eat gluten. It's rare that it's a case that they don't eat both, mainly because it's so, so restrictive. But for the most part, of our, a lot of our clients just have found their tolerance level for what works for them, what they can manage like with no digestive symptoms and just still feel really, really good. Mm, I couldn't agree more. And what you mentioned regarding the minimizing of processed foods and the increase in the nutrient profile of the foods we are consuming reminds me of the whole argument around vegan from a health standpoint as well. It's very, very similar. It's like all of a sudden, yes, you can go down the route of vegan junk food, but quite often there is a higher intake in the amount of vegetables they're having. And there's a minimization of the amount of processed meats that they're having, right? So all of a sudden the health improves. And I mean, from an ethical standpoint, completely, you know, down to your personal preference, but I would always question like maybe just being conscious about the type of meat you consume and also just diversifying, you might find the same. And same with what you said regarding the poisons in the dose. And quite often we do have tolerances, myself included. And I found that I was extremely sensitive off the back of a diet and just generally down to the calories that I had, I minimized the amount I did. And then all of a sudden, and the thing is when you reintroduce dairy, it's never like, oh, I'm just going to have a little bit of milk back in my Americano. It is like you said, the milkshake, the pizza. And then all of a sudden it's like, like dairy is like, it's never just the small amounts. So no, I can definitely relate to that as well. So would you say in your experience, if someone has come to you, would you encourage them to, if they wanted to keep them in their life and try to get in a place where their digestion is super optimal, would you encourage most people to keep them in? I would. Yeah. And it's about like working with the gut and seeing, okay, what kind of, there's some sort of an insufficiency there. If you were struggling, like there's a lot of emphasis based on food intolerance tests, which there is no scientific basis behind a food intolerance test. So very often a food intolerance test will just like a finger prick one will show you the foods that you eat most frequently. So always eggs, dairy and gluten. And people are like, oh, I have to cut these three things out and I feel amazing. Of course you do because you're eating more vegetables. So the easiest thing to do like that isn't going to cost you whatever, 100 euro on a food intolerance test is do a five-day food diary and just say, okay, I had breakfast, I had this, I felt fine. I had lunch, I had this, I had diarrhea, I had, I had bloating, I had pains, I had wind. So very, very quickly, you'll be able to see, okay, it's these foods, it's this food group. And then what we often do is we look to maybe eliminate, if not minimize it. And then the most important thing is to get to the root of the problem. Like, why is it that this person, this client is able to digest broccoli and I'm not? There's some sort of an insufficiency going on. So 
Could it be a small intestinal bacterial overgrowth? Could it be a case that it's just dysbiosis where we just don't have enough of the beneficial bacteria in order to break down our food? Could it be that we're not eating sufficient fiber? Could it be low stomach acid? So I always find like a lot of nutritionists will just cut out a food and be like, you can't have that food anymore. But no, it's everyone should be able to eat similar enough foods. Like obviously there is outliers to that. But there, as I said, there's a reason that I can digest broccoli at this moment in time, but you can't. So what is going on in your gut that's kind of prohibiting you from digesting that? So our job is to get in and be like, okay, treat the root. What is that reason? And fix it and then reintroduce that food. Mm, it's very interesting. It almost seems like the easier way out is just to be like, yeah, take some time off dairy or never eat it again. So maybe that's part of the reason. So it's so difficult. Like if you go to a restaurant, if you're on like say a low FODMAP diet because you have digestive issues, like FODMAPs are absolutely everywhere. So if we do have someone on a low FODMAP diet, it's only temporary while we get in and fix what's actually going on at the root. And then we start to very like slowly phase and reintroduce those foods in. Mm, as we've kind of discussed, it seems like an easy route to go low FODMAP or to cut out dairy products, to cut out wheat products or gluten. But then you are pretty much asking for an eating disorder thereafter due to the amount of restriction you're placing on yourself, right? And it's just like food shouldn't be that stressful. It shouldn't True. be able to go out to a restaurant and pick up the menu and be like, oh, that sounds nice. And then continue to enjoy your time with your friends or your family. And like, I suppose coming from a perspective where I had the opposite of that, where it literally consumed every thought in my mind, it's so liberating to reach a point where food is just food. It's just there for enjoyment. Sometimes we totally don't actually an inconvenience because I'm like, oh, I have to remember to eat. But it's just so liberating to, to reach that point. Yeah, I could not agree more. And on that front, we've touched on the menstrual cycles slightly, and I'm sure that we could do an entire podcast on the complexity of that as well. But one of the favorite quotes that I heard a while back, and I think it was on the last woman's health special we did on this podcast, it was that your menstrual cycle is essentially your monthly report card. And you kind of alluded to that earlier in terms of the bloating that you might experience, the roller coaster of emotions, et cetera. So if you are a female who's experiencing some major symptoms around their menstrual cycle aside from maybe looking into their levels of stress but i think that that's probably worth touching on again whatever advice do you have for minimizing the impact it has full stop and also on someone's health and fitness journey as well because i find that we have three weeks or so of solid journey and then there's an interruption then there's getting back on track and then by the third or fourth month of that happening it can get a bit disheartening with cycles coming around it might cause some interruption so can you give us some context on that yeah. So like first place I would always start is nutrition. So look at how, how are you eating? How are you, how balanced are your meals? So first thing in the morning, are you waking up and having cornflakes and low fat milk, which you know yourself, it's going to cause an increase in your blood sugar and increase in your insulin. This isn't going to be beneficial for our female hormones. Again, it's going to cause stress. It's going to mess with our female hormones. So then what happens is you get tired, you get lethargic and as your blood sugar drops, you kind of crave something else that's kind of sweet, a quick fix. So really looking at managing our blood sugars, how are we building our meals? So if instead we were to add nuts and seeds, like fiber from our berries and maybe some like 
Greek yogurt, like your protein, all of a sudden that meal looks completely more balanced, lots more nutrients in it. And most importantly, it doesn't cause this massive increase in our blood sugar. So if we like really look at our meals, as we plan our meals, look at the balance. So is there a little bit of carbohydrate, a little bit of fats, a good source of protein and some fiber and some micronutrients in there? Like always look at color when it comes to your meals as well, because that's how you know you're getting nutrients in so balancing our plate or balancing our our meals is a big one the other one is looking at making sure that we're having our greens so like our leafy greens like our kale and our spinach and our broccoli so these particular vegetables contain a phytonutrient called dim so dim is this amazing compound that essentially binds to because we have and have like good and bad estrogens in our body we have our good estrogen that we make ourselves and then we have what we call our exogenous estrogens which come from our own environment what we what the air that we breathe in like not like drinking from plastic bottles drinking from plastic tupperware and the tan the makeup the soap that we lather on our skin they're all and what we call endocrine disruptors so endocrine means hormone and a kind of a hormone disruptor so what they do these exogenous estrogens is they get in and they mimic our own estrogen and they tend to kind of wreak havoc and give us pms and hormonal issues so it's back to this kind of dim compound what this does is it binds to those bad estrogens and actually moves them out of our body through our stool. So this kind of brings us on to like, obviously making sure that you have your leafy greens, but then that brings us on to gut health. So making sure that you're having at least one regular bowel movement a day so that you can actually rid your body of those kind of bad hormones. I kind of, I hate saying bad hormones, but you know what I mean? Those not favorable kind of metabolites of estrogen. That's kind of what I w- would call them. And yeah, so making sure you're getting in all of your fiber, your whole grains, your different fruit and veg so that you are regular. Another thing is water. So a lot of people will look at fiber when it comes to constipation and the beaten plenty of fiber, but we need to complement that with adding in water. Otherwise, I suppose it's, it's kind of what keeps our stool loose. So it's really important to make sure that we're adequately hydrated as well. So those would really be the the nutrition side of things. And then from a supplementation perspective, again, kind of bringing it back to magnesium. So magnesium really like slows down our central nervous system and just, it's like a a hug essentially, like a hug in a glass. So we have this magnesium that we use and it's absolutely amazing. It actually has another amino acid called L-theanine in it. So L-theanine has a really, really calming effect again on our central nervous system. It's great for anyone who has a racing mind. So supplements like that can really just prevent our central nervous system from constantly being in that um, sympathetic fight or flight response mode. So they would be the main things. And then from a lifestyle perspective, it's looking at, okay, maybe you can't manage the stresses that you're under. Maybe there's no way of getting away from them, but what are your stress reduction strategies? And I say to so many women, like, how are you looking after yourself? And they're like, what? what are you doing for yourself? Like we're doing so much for other people. And yes, we might be doing so much for ourselves from taking our supplements, eating the right food, going to the gym, like legging it here, there and everywhere. But like, when are we actually like sitting with ourselves and actually just being present and taking a moment and stopping from this go, 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 like hustle grind. (laughs) Um, So that generally looks different to everyone. Like for me, it's, yin yoga, it's cacao ceremonies, it's breath work. Like it's really just sitting with myself. Like there's, there's times where it'll be a full week before I've actually stopped and checked in on myself to be like, okay, how are you actually, how are you doing? And there's so many women who just go through months on end where they don't check in with themselves. So that's how I look after myself. And for other people, it might be, 
I like love going for a walk in nature, like especially barefoot and like grounding your feet and just being present, especially like on the sand, like along the beach. I know I sound like a total hippie now, but anyway. <laughs> but for other people that might be listening to a podcast, it might be like listening to their favorite album, it might be having a bath. I'm not a bath person, but that is for other people. So it's really just about like how do you actually look after yourself because nutrition supplementation and high intensity interval training isn't looking after yourself it is in a way but like are you actually checking in with yourself and becoming in tune with your emotions and just sitting with yourself really and that's how we kind of we move back into we pull ourselves back into this parasympathetic nervous system state and just chill out and that's all that's going to do is help our female hormones And I love that you're the person saying this as well. It would be very easy for a hippie with zero responsibilities and no business, no children to tell you all those things. But the fact is you're coming from someone who does run a business, who is a mom, who is looking after their health and wellness. I think it's super important that you're projecting that message and genuinely saying that I do my best to check in with myself. Sometimes I'm not always able to do it as frequently as I'd like to, but ultimately this is what I'm doing to optimize my health and my wellness. Yeah, I think so many of us just go through life on autopilot, like just doing, doing, when we don't actually check in with ourselves and sit with ourselves and actually be present. Because if you don't do that, life just literally just bypasses you and you're like, whoa, how did those years just go by so fast? So I think it's so important that I think because I suppose because we live in this culture where it's just you're rewarded and you're gratified for doing everything. It's so easy to just not actually sit down and just calm. And I always think as well, meditation or breath work or just sitting in a room and being silent is one of the most productive things you can do. Because I think a lot of people who are so productive are like, oh, that's a waste of time. I don't have time. I don't have five minutes. I'm like, if you don't have five minutes, then taking this five minutes is the most productive thing that you can do in a given day. And you'll notice that when you start doing these things, you actually are more productive with the rest of your doing energy, if that makes sense. 100%. I usually say to those people who don't have five minutes, I'm like, if you really don't have five minutes, you really need to reflect and take 10 or like really look at what you're doing your days because I feel for you. Honestly, I really feel for you because that's something that's going to not be able to be sustained long term. So no, I couldn't agree more on that front. But a quite common prescription for menstrual cycle challenges tends to be the pill, which is a very, very interesting solution to a very complex problem. And in some ways, I can see the temptation of women going to their GP, putting their trust in the person who has been seeing them maybe since they were a girl or a boy. You usually have a good relationship with your GP for years and years, and you build a certain level of trust as well. And if you are someone who is go, 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 which the majority of us are in this 21st century world that we live in, the temptation to just take what the doctor prescribes is going to probably be the most likely outcome. So can you let us into why it's a bad idea to take the pill prescription, why it's being prescribed, especially by someone who has such a trusted figure and yeah, just everything around that. Cause I know you are very vocal on this point. Yeah. Where do I start? Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Kind of worms. Sorry. (laughs) A lot of clients will come to us maybe in their late twenties, early thirties, late thirties, looking to get pregnant who've been on the pill for a really long time. And they might've been on the put on the pill because so one thing I kind of do want to make clear is I've absolutely nothing against the pill. The pill is an amazing, amazing contraception. If you don't want to get pregnant, it's brilliant. My issue with the pill is that people are taking it for the wrong reasons. So people will be taking it. They might've been prescribed it years ago for, um, for hormonal acne. It's a really good temporary treatment for hormonal acne, really bad period pains, potentially endometriosis, 
PCOS. And yes, it manages their symptoms at that period of time. But eventually when they come off the pill, all they've done is masked that issue. And it's kind of like putting like a plaster over a bullet wound. The way I always describe it as well is like, if you go to the GP and you say, I have really, really bad PMS or I have PCOS and I have cystic acne, I have facial hair, I'm I've in a regular cycle, I'm not getting my period. All of these different reasons that you go on the pill. Going on the pill for those reasons is like walking into your kitchen noticing that it's flooding and instead of turning off the tap picking up a mop and just mopping the floor over and over again whereas what we do like nutrition supplementation and lifestyle modifications is walking in and turning off the tap like that's the sensible thing to do it's not always the most straightforward thing to do of course it's more straightforward to just take a pill every day but The issue is it's a temporary fix. And when these women ultimately want to come off the pill for various reasons, maybe they want to get pregnant, maybe it's other reasons, they have nearly the exact same issues very often that they had 10 years previous. And especially with like our fertility clients, when a fertility client comes to us, they want to be pregnant yesterday. They don't want to be pregnant in X amount of months, but they don't have, maybe they went in the pill because they didn't have a period where they had PCOS and they had irregular cycles. And instead of getting them pregnant, being quite straightforward, we have to unravel everything that's been masked over the 10 or 15 years that they were on the pill. So that's what the issue is. It's just knowing that you're not actually treating your hormonal acne, you're not treating your irregular cycle. So if you go to the GP because you have no cycle, so you've no period, so that's what we call hypothalamic amenorrhea if it's been gone on for three months, your aim is to get your period back. When you go on the pill, you're not actually getting a period. You're just getting a withdrawal bleed. So you stop making your own hormones. So it's already an issue. Hypothalamic amenorrhea is already an issue where your hormones aren't like doing what they need to do. They're kind of flatlining. If you just take the pill, it's the exact same thing. You're taking in synthetic hormones, which is stopping your body from making its own hormones. You're not ovulating. You're not getting a period. You're just getting this false bleed when you take your week break. And the reason you get a bleed is because you've stopped taking the pill and therefore you get a drop in synthetic hormones and you shed the lining of your uterus. So I think an important thing is about educating women that you are, you're switching off your hormones when you do take the pill, which I don't think a lot of people are actually aware of that. They think, okay, oh yeah, I got my period back because I'm on the pill. It's like, it's not, it's not your actual, it's not your body doing what it physiologically is supposed to do. Like those kind of fluctuations hormones, you ovulate, you produce progesterone, your progesterone and estrogen drop, you shed the lining and the cycle starts again. That's not happening. So I think it's important for women to understand what is actually happening when they take the pill every day. So it's really just being prescribed because it's an easy solution to some pretty pressing problems. So rather than obviously a GP doesn't have the time to do the type of things that you do and dig into a lifestyle, it's kind of like, what can I give them that's going to provide some form of solution? Even if it pushes the problem down the line, it might actually provide some temporary relief. Is that fundamentally why it's being prescribed? Yeah, hundred percent. And I do think the GPs do get a bit of a, like a bad rep for this. Like, I don't know if it's that fair because as you said yourself, they don't have the time and resources. It's so much to work with a client. A client comes to us with hypothalamic amenorrhea. There's so much work to do from nutrition, supplementation, lifestyle, and managing like very, very often any people who have um, what we call functional hypothalamic amenorrhea, which is their period isn't there because of a behavioral reason. They're not eating enough, they're exercising too much, or their psychological stresses are all of the above. And these clients are the ones that need the most amount of support. Like, So we check in with the clients every week, but they're the ones that need so, so much support and so much hand-holding 
encouraging and so much reassurance. So it's impossible for a GP to be able to facilitate and kind of support a patient in that way. But I think it should be some sort of a referral process, really. Like it should be, okay, you could. It, my issue is that people aren't given the option. It's like, oh, you, you're not getting a period. So you just take the pill. There's no other option. It should be, okay, you can take the pill. Just, you know, it will switch off your hormones. You won't get an authentic period. When you come off the pill, when you want to get pregnant, you're probably going to have the same issue. Or here's a referral onto a nutritional therapist or a nutritionist who can help you and support you from a nutrition, exercise, lifestyle, supplementation standpoint. So it should be like, it shouldn't be an us and them. It shouldn't be like they're doing this. They don't know what they're talking about and vice versa. It should be a collaborative approach. Like ultimately I'm in this job because I want to help people. And I'm just like, I've no doubt about it. GPs are in their job for the exact same reason. So I think they should just take away all of the drama and ultimately realize we all just want to help people we're all on the same page so yeah it's tough and then another reason that a lot of people aren't aware of as well is that like GPs for hypothalamic amenorrhea or missed periods when you're not going through your menstrual cycle or when you're not getting a period you're not getting that increase in estrogen and estrogen is really really important in order to protect our bones so you'll notice that like a lot of women who now suffer from osteoporosis, if you ask them, they had hypothalamic amenorrhea years ago, they had really irregular cycles. So they weren't getting that bone protective effect. So that's a big reason as to why GPs will prescribe the pill as well, because it's in order to protect someone's bones. So there is reasons. It's not as simple as like GPs are demons and they don't want the best. I just think that it, it should be a case that when someone walks, a girl or a woman walks into um, a GP's office, it should be that they're, they leave feeling really informed and understanding the side effects, understanding how the oral contraceptive actually works and understanding what their alternatives are, what their, what their other options are. I've never thought of such a straightforward collaborative approach or even just the avenue to education simply. And I think both of those things could be incredibly valuable. And it seems like such a simple solution to a very complex and challenging problem. But yeah, the solution is literally there, but it's just a case of saying, it's like you mentioned, it's not us versus them. It is literally a case of like, how can we bring this together to align our common goal, which like you said, it's ultimately to help people with the challenges that they're experiencing. And on that note as well, it's interesting that you mentioned regarding contraception on the front of the pill that you are switching your hormones off, which never sounds like a healthy thing to do. But obviously there will be many people who want to go on the pill for contraceptive reasons outside of some of the challenges they're facing. So is there any, I hate to use this word, but any healthy version of contraception or is technically the healthiest form of contraception no contraception that impacts your hormones or essentially down to just condoms or something like that. Yeah. So like I would say the contraception that's going to have the least amount of side effects and not negatively impact your body would be non-hormonal forms of contraception. And I completely understand that this isn't for everybody. If you're a teenager and you need contraception, I completely understand that like logging into natural cycles and taking your body temperature every single morning, that might not be the most like reliable method for contraception for you at that time. So like there is a hundred percent a place for hormonal contraception, but then if you did want to look at more non, like more natural or non-hormonal forms of contraception, you could, as I mentioned, look at basal body temperature tracking. So essentially how this works is when we ovulate just afterwards, we get this increase in our body temperature. First thing in the morning, you'll notice it. So there are apps like Natural Cycles and Daisies that essentially provide you with a thermometer and also an app, which is essentially an algorithm. So you, it'll take it like, I always say as well, like just be careful because it will take it to a couple of months for the algorithm to learn how your body works and when you ovulate and how your cycle looks. 
So essentially what you do is you just plug in your temperature first thing in the morning into this app and it will essentially give you green days and red days. So if you're using it for a, as a form of contraception, your red days are don't have sex on these days, your green days are green means good to go. But at the beginning of it, like I'll be totally honest, it literally only gives you like a couple of, a handful of green days in a given month. So in terms of people's sex life, maybe it's that's not for them either. The other one is obviously condoms. The other one is the other way of kind of like becoming more in tune with your cycle. Obviously, this isn't overly reliable either, but like is understanding your cervical fluids. You're going to get changes in your cervical fluid depending on whether you're fertile or non-fertile. So you'll notice that it goes from like a Elliot, you're probably loving this conversation. <laughs> You'll notice that like it goes from almost like a moisturizer lotion consistency to like raw egg white, like that you can actually like hold between your fingers and it will stay stretchy and stay stuck to both fingers basically. And then again, you start to move toward like a moisturizer consistency and then it's gone. So when you are in that, have that consistency where like, well, there is cervical fluid there. Those are your fertile days. So those are obviously, if you don't want to get pregnant, those are the days to be really, really careful and maybe like use barrier forms of contraception. And then the other one, um, that a lot of people will tend to recommend is the copper coil. So the copper coil is non-hormonal. So it's a coil that's obviously inserted into your uterus and it basically makes it inhospitable for an embryo to survive in that environment. I have had, yeah, very much mixed stories when it comes to the coil. Some women find it absolutely amazing. It goes in and we have to remember they still ovulate, they still make their own hormones and they still get a period, which is amazing. And they, yeah, they absolutely fly it. And then there's other women who just have really bad issues with it. It causes irregular bleeding. It causes pain. It can get lost in your uterus. So again, like I always just want to make people aware that there are, there are risks involved and there are, there are setbacks to any form of contraception, but really it's about knowing your options and understanding, okay, this is, this might be non-hormonal, but it's not going to be as effective as a hormonal contraception. So yeah. I always say like disclaimer, don't blame me if you have any of that practice. But yeah, it's about empowering ourselves with all of the, um, all of the different options and all of the different tools that we have. Absolutely. I think you just sharing the multitude of different options that you just did might take people away from just assuming that the pill is the only way. And don't get me wrong, there seems to be the most accessible and easiest option. But at the same time, again, just someone knowing the difference and potentially knowing that, okay, well, this form might mean that I'm not going to have a big chance of disrupting my hormones and therefore, you know, longer term health could be the difference between someone making that choice. So I think, as you mentioned, it's just about empowering people with that information and giving them the ability to have more than one choice. And transitioning onto a very delicate topic now, which I know that you've spent a lot of time talking about and I've spent no time talking about it on the podcast. So I'm very much looking forward to getting your take on this is of course, miscarriage. And I want to go through your experience on this. And I just want to get a very well-rounded look at the miscarriage situation as a whole in terms of how many people it's impacting, why so many women are suffering in silence. I've noticed a bigger increase, fortunately, in the amount of people sharing recently. I've even had a couple of closer friends or people that I know have been sharing this, and it seems to be more prevalent than I anticipated, I understood, but maybe that's just because so many people were keeping it to themselves. So would you be open to sharing more about your experience and a miscarriage as a whole? Yes, absolutely. So God, it was just before the pandemic. So it was probably around February, March of 20. My last of the years was 2020. I have no idea. I think it was 2020. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so we were fortunate to get pregnant basically straight away. And I'd done kind of, I felt like I'd done everything. I'd 
I've eaten really well. I've quit out caffeine. I was eating all my fruits and veg, taking my prenatal, taking my CoQ10, managing my exercise. Like I would always say to, to clients, like when you're exercising or when you're trying to get pregnant, don't exercise like you're being chased by a bear. You want to try and like manage your your um, your sympathetic nervous system as much as you can. So I felt like I'd done everything right, set up for success and had a scan at, um, say, I think it was seven weeks and everything was fine. And then unfortunately at nine weeks, I had a miscarriage. So yeah, I just kind of, I just thought it was for me, like I, there's no, I don't have any other option other than kind of looking at, did I do something wrong? And this is so, so normal with women. They immediately think like, should I have not done this? Should I have not eaten this? Did I have too much of this? So a big thing is like to understand for anyone who has suffered a miscarriage is that very often it's just a case of really, really bad luck. That's a big thing. For me, it was, there's no, there's absolutely no way of me knowing this, but I actually subsequently went on and looked at my thyroid health. I got my thyroid examined and it turned out that I had subclinical hypothyroidism, which is basically just a fancy term for, I had like a low functioning thyroid, but it wasn't, it was subclinical. So it wasn't in the range where it would be like red flagged by a GP. What's really interesting, obviously, like I delved into this, um, I've delved into this a lot over the last few years, is that if you go to the GP and you don't want to get pregnant, you're not trying to conceive and your thyroid is kind of like, it's, it's a little bit off. They will say like, oh, your thyroid is absolutely fine. But if you are trying to conceive and trying to have a baby and you go to the GP and get your bloods done and your thyroid is a little bit off, that is detrimental for your fertility. It can result in difficulty getting pregnant and can result in miscarriage and can result in reoccurring miscarriage. And unfortunately, not to bash GPs, but actually I think it's fair. A lot of GPs don't know this. So I've had clients who come to us and have had a miscarriage or two miscarriages or maybe even three. After three, generally in Ireland, there is investigation done and you can generally find out that thyroid is off then. But someone who comes to us who has had one or two miscarriages and I would say to them, how's your thyroid? And they say, yeah, my GP said it's fine. And I always say to everybody, when you get your bloods done, always get a printout. And they'll send on a printout of the results and it will be black and white that they have subclinical hypothyroidism. So the thyroid is a little bit off. It's not in range to be, I suppose, overt hypothyroidism, but it is absolutely detrimental for their fertility and could very, very likely have been a cause of their miscarriage. So I like I'm quite vocal about this and really like getting the word out there because as I said, unfortunately, especially any any GPs who aren't um well versed in female health and fertility, they don't realise that something that's slightly out of range could be so damaging for your fertility. So yeah, that was our story really. And in a way, like I know this sounds so strange, but I'm so grateful that it happened because it really got me so, so passionate about fertility because I've been in a space where I would literally do absolutely anything to be pregnant and been in those really, really dark spaces. Um, and clients who come to us, I can just empathize with them so much. And there's no greater reward from a job satisfaction perspective than someone saying they're pregnant after having difficulties or having a miscarriage. So yeah, I'm going to get emotional, but I just love what I do. It's amazing. But yeah, that that was our story. So it was it was a bit of a rocky road, but we got there in the end. Um, once I fixed the thyroid issue, everything was really, really straightforward. Um, we're lucky to work with a, an amazing consultant who specialised in thyroid health. So for me, there is clients who are happy to wait and manage their thyroid because there is um, things you can do to, to kind of bring it back to a normal state. But for me, I was like, 
I want to be pregnant yesterday. So I just went on medication. I just took the more straightforward route that I knew was going to work within a month or two. And fortunately we got pregnant um, after I think two or three months after that. So yeah, it was in the end, it, it was quite straightforward, but it was a bit of a rocky road. No, I can imagine. It's mind-blowing that it came down to something. And I don't want to call it simple because it's not simple, but just with that awareness that you have now and the fact that you can share it as well. So it may reduce the chance of heartbreak for so many people. And with such a simple solution in a way, of course, there's no simple solution to anything in a way, but at least if you know what the problem is, you can actually go about getting the right solutions to it. And I think that it's beautiful that you took care of your health so much to the point in which the obvious indicator was quite straightforward for you to point out as well, which is fantastic. But on the note of mental well-being, did it impact you and your partner from a mental well-being standpoint? Because if yeah, please go into that for me. It was so tough, like really, really tough. I had to go to counselling over it. And do you know what it was? It wasn't even the loss. So like it was mid pandemic it was literally the start of the pandemic. So it was tough because I had to find it on my own while my husband waited in the car and I had to go and kind of share the news with him afterwards, which was tough. But you know what? There was no getting away from processing it or the grief because we were like, it was when you couldn't even go outside in Ireland, you couldn't go outside your 2K radius. So I literally just had to sit at home with my feelings and I thankfully processed it like just really thoroughly over those two weeks. Like there was, for me, there was no way of getting away from it. I just had to sit with those feelings. So that was okay. That was something that I was able to manage and handle and process. The hardest part for me was being pregnant afterwards. So there was just, and this is so common for anyone like pregnancy after loss is honestly, I would take, I know it sounds so strange, but I would take the grief any day over the anxiety around having a pregnancy after loss. So that was really hard. And I actually ended up going to, to therapy and um, which I felt really, really helped afterwards. So yeah. And like when it comes to like, as a couple, I think people process grief in different ways. My husband, I don't know if it's a man's thing, gross over generalization, but he just didn't really seem to process it at all. And there was kind of a lot of anger there, whereas I didn't have any anger. It wasn't an emotion that I could even think about. It was just sadness. So that was really tough. Even like on our relationship, it was really, really hard. We'd never gone through anything like that before. Then being on social media, I just literally, like, I'll be totally honest. I just called anyone who even had a child that alone was pregnant. I just couldn't be in that space. So, so yeah, like it was really, really tough. And it was only when, and I think, like, I think it, it's, it's so important to normalize Yes, you can be ha- you can be so happy for someone who is pregnant and so happy for your best friend and want the absolute best for them, but be absolutely devastated for yourself at the same time. And that is something that I really struggled with as well because my best friend actually ended up getting pregnant a few weeks later. And I was just like, do you know what it is? It, I felt like the worst person in the world because not only was I managing the grief and the envy, the, it's jealousy, like there's no getting away from it. But I was also dealing with how can she be my best friend? But I feel those feelings towards her, even though I'm so happy for her at the same time. So on top of that, you're like, I must be a bad person. So I think it's so important. And like anyone who I've spoken to who's gone through this, like and any counselors or psychologists have said, like you are already going through a tough time as it is. There is no need to start questioning your actual feelings. You have to feel what you feel and understand that those are the feelings that you're going to feel to get you through this phase. So yeah, like it's, it's just about normalizing. It is normal to be so happy for someone else and be devastated for yourself when it comes to fertility. And then, yeah, thankfully, I suppose we were getting scans left, right and center, but I think we got a scan at 16 weeks and I finally started to be like, okay, I think we're going to be okay. So yeah, it was a happy ending in the end. And to be honest, it was like 
from a personal growth perspective, it was just so necessary. I do feel like a very, very different person, like this side of things. And it's just become a huge part of my job and my passion. So in a way, I'm so happy that it did happen. Yeah, it's amazing that that's the perspective you have on it. And I'm incredibly happy that it has been a happy ending for you as well. It's, yeah, it can't be easy for anyone. And I love that you're flying the flag and making people aware of these things now. It's absolutely incredible. And on that note, if we could get some quick takeaways on anyone who is looking to get pregnant soon, do you have any fertility tips that you would give to both men and women who are potentially looking to conceive in the near future? Yeah. So, one thing that a lot of people aren't aware of is that my saying is it takes 12 months to make a baby. So that sounds quite unusual for some people because obviously they know that it takes nine months, but we have a window of opportunity prior to conception from a male and from a female perspective where we can really optimize the health of the egg and the health of the sperm. So when it comes to egg health in particular, we know that egg health declines with age, unfortunately, but we really have this window. It's generally like kind of 100 to 120. So like three to four months, 100 to 120 days. So three to four months prior to ovulation where your eggs go through this like sprint to maturity where they grow and grow and grow. And they're really susceptible to oxidative damage and the negative effects of inflammation. So if we can just like wrap our eggs in a safety blanket as much as we can, then what we can do is really help their health and their quality. And so there is lots you can do from like a nutrition supplementation lifestyle standpoint. So I won't like delve into them, but like really like the the take home, even from, sorry, from sperm, just to backtrack a little bit, they go through a really similar maturation process. So like their synthesis generally takes two to three months. So again, from a sperm perspective, from a male perspective, they can do so much kind of three, two to three months prior to conception to really optimize the health of the sperm and therefore optimize the health of the pregnancy from both sides, really. And the, the main thing is really like a Mediterranean style diet is what's been shown in research time and time again to, to be beneficial for um, female and male fertility so like as much fruit and veg and color and antioxidants as you can because remember antioxidants are going to prevent oxidative damage to the egg and the sperm and then the other thing is your omega-3 fatty acids so again these have been shown in research to be beneficial for sperm health for subsequent pregnancy as well so really important for, for men and women so if you don't eat oily fish so your salmon, your mackerel, your anchovies, your sardines, and your herring, it's best to supplement with a high quality omega-3 because remember these have like anti-inflammatory properties. So again, we want to protect the egg and the sperm from inflammation. And what else? There's loads of barely think of them, but yeah, a high quality prenatal is another one. And I would always say a prenatal is not just for a woman, it's also for men. So it's so, so important that men have a prenatal as well, specifically one that contains methylfolate, like also known as your vitamin B9, which we know is really important to prevent the instance of neurotube defects like spina bifida. So I would always look for um, high quality prenatal and one that contains methylfolate instead of folic acid. So not to kind of go through the, the gauntlet um, or the long story, but basically folic acid is a synthetic version, whereas methylfolate is like an active, more natural version of um, vitamin B9. So it means that it's highly absorbable and usable by our body. So you're taking it in, in its already usable form. And um, the other one would be managing your exercise. So if you're a woman, like exercise is going to act as a stress around our body. So 
yeah, don't exercise like you're being chased by a bear when you're trying to conceive. That's a big one. And same for men, just managing your stressors, managing your psychological stressors. The other one that I forgot to mention as well, specifically for parents or women or women and men who are over the age of 35. So it's really important for anyone who's an older couple. So over the age of 35, that they're supplementing with CoQ10. So CoQ10 is an antioxidant that's been shown to be really beneficial for egg and for sperm health. So our CoQ10 levels naturally decline with age, specifically after the age of 35. So it's important to get that in. And I think I'm gone. I think that's all I have. Managing again. Actually, sorry, yeah, your environmental kind of toxins. So making sure that you're kind of staying away from your plastic bottles, your plastic Tupperware, like managing like what you're lathering on your skin, that kind of thing. Um, just making like smart swaps where you can like make sure you're drinking stainless steel bottles, stainless steel coffee cups and that kind of thing. So the chemicals aren't leaching into the fluid. For men, a big one is like kind of staying cool down there. So like not wearing like really like tight fitting, like nylon boxers and stuff like that. So obviously sperm is going to like flourish at a slightly lower temperature. So making sure they're kind of not sitting for long periods of time, make sure they're not like doing too many saunas, steam rooms and that kind of thing. Um, and yeah, I think that's it. <laughs> that is a good checklist. I'm going to put that all down on the Google drive. And when the time yeah. comes, I'll be taking all the boxes, <laughs> but no, it sounds like there's a lot of practical steps that we can take. And I think fundamentally, yeah, it comes down to just optimal your health first and then adding all these things on top and then hoping for the best thereafter. I think, as you mentioned, a lot of it's going to be down to a little bit of luck, but I think you increase your probability of that massively by doing all those things. So thank you so much for sharing both of those aspects, both the, the loss and the ability for us to conceive in such an optimal manner as well. And Michelle, this has been an incredible conversation. I feel like we've taken so many practical things away from today. So just one final question for you is where can people find you? Where can people work with you if they want to? Where's the best place to follow more about what you do? Yeah, so we are The Fit Clinic on Instagram and The Fit Clinic on yeah website i'll put it all in the show notes but thank you so much for today it's been an incredible conversation thank you so much Eddie. it was great to chat and that was the simply fit podcast i hope you gained a huge amount of value from today's episode i feel inspired to improve your health and well-being be sure to search for simply fit in apple podcasts google podcasts and spotify or anywhere else you get your podcast from and go ahead and subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes Also, if you like the episode, please don't forget to give it a five-star rating. I'd love to hear your feedback or any questions you have. So reach out to me on social media. You'll find me on Facebook and Instagram at Elliot Hassoun. Thank you so much for listening. And I look forward to talking with you all on the next one.